Before we get started with today's episode and before we start jamming out to the theme song again, I want to say a quick hello and share a little update on where I've been for the last two months. It's been a little while since you've heard me on this platform. And that actually had to do with what this episode is about. The election was pretty intense um, within my, my job and also just prompted a lot of tensions that I had a difficult time working through. And honestly, work, working through this episode and editing it helped a lot with processing a lot of the internal conflict that I was feeling. And so this episode is dedicated to folks who may have process everything that happened during the election are still confused or maybe still sitting with these tensions it's super real and I feel so honored to have been joined by so many awesome people who really just understand uh, what I've been feeling the last couple months and so holding all the multiple truths all of the love and the rage I hope y'all enjoy this episode and appreciate your patience and yeah just so grateful for this audience and this platform to do this work y'all so hope you enjoy Welcome to With Love and Rage, a podcast on a journey to uncovering the multiple truths of modern-day social justice organizers and cultural workers. You'll hear from our guests, their political aha moments, how they heal, and all the love and rage in between. In this space, we center joy, humor, drama, and healing, which basically means we love to reflect and have fun while doing it. I'm your host, Angela Loca, and welcome to episode five. Today, we're working through tensions, talking about this year's election, and unpacking the wildness of electoral politics. To give you a rundown of how we got here, I put out a call on our Instagram asking folks, are you sitting with the very real tensions of this election, angry with hearing voter die over the wildness of respectability politics? I had some folks slid into my DMs, we did some interviews, and now we're here to share our reflections on the 2020 election and how we're grappling with all of these tensions and truths. I'm joined by six awesome guests today, and I'm so excited for y'all to hopefully feel validated, challenged, and curious. Our first guest is Rain, a black feminist organizer, digital communicator, and content creator residing in Central Florida. Rain has harnessed the power of intuitive tarot and education through her blog, Afro Liberated Taste, to connect with BIPOC communities, and is here today to share her journey with electoral politics. Let's tune in. I will definitely say I've gone through a lot of phases when it comes to electoral politics. I, um, you know, at a young age, I was very interested in electoral politics. You know, I thought they were important. And then um, I actually got really involved in the Democratic Party. Um, But then over the last few years, I've really kind of broken away from um, this sort of pressure that I was feeling to sort of pick a side. Um, You know, we exist in a two-party system as much as, you know, I would like to see other groups and other folks represented. That's the truth of the reality that we're in right now. And for me, I became a little bit tired and dissatisfied, feeling as though the, for example, the Democratic Party, you know, wasn't representing the full interests of my community and people that I'm in service to. 
um, as a radical black queer feminist, um, there are some things that, you know, I'm able to sort of sit back and negotiate on or, or sort of wait and see on. But there are some things that are actually things that I can't compromise on and things that I'm finding myself increasingly um, struggling with. Because when I'm in community and I'm in space with folks, um, you know, who are impacted by things like police brutality or um, by LGBTQ suppression, um, but then I'm seeing, you know, the establishment endorsing candidates who have a track record of going against those issues, who have a track record of harming those communities or who support policies that could in turn harm those communities. I feel a lot of tension. and I feel like when I'm speaking out to folks about it and when I post a meme or I try to insert a little bit of that into like a conversation, I get hit with the pushback. It's like, well, we have to pick what we can. We have to settle like lesser of two evils, that, that harmful narrative that actually doesn't really hold people to the fire. And like, say we demand, like if you want our support, we actually demand that you align with us on these things. Um, and these are things that our communities are not compromising on. If you want our support, if you want you know, our endorsement or like if you want our money, our votes, whatever it is, you actually have to be fully in alignment with us. And I don't see that happening enough. You know, it's hard. And then it's like people expect, particularly like black folks to make or break an election. Um, and it's really weird being sort of a victim and a savior in the same space where you know, and like you alluded to the protests over the summer, it was like, yeah, like, you know, we need to march for black lives, like defund the police. Great. But then we're getting candidates who are very explicit in saying that they have no plans to defund the police. We have candidates um, who were prosecutors. And so, like, what does that mean for communities that are putting their bodies and their lives on the line, demanding um, and crying out? for safety um, and for a new vision of safety and to be sort of forced to pick between the lesser of two evils when, you know, on some issues, they're not very, they're not very different. Um, And so that's just like a really hard tension to grapple with. And it it feels kind of hard when it's just kind of this assumption that we're supposed to settle or that we'll figure out those issues later. Let's just get someone in office and then we'll hold them accountable. When does that accountability start? The first hundred days, two years from now, towards the end of the presidency or their term in office, whichever role they're playing. But like the question for me is, why can't we start doing that now? Um, And what is that fear that's holding people back from doing that? Or what is the assumption or the the idea that makes it so that we can't do that? This is arguably the biggest election of our nation's history, and that's real. Um, But I also think that, like, when we put that sort of pressure and we put people in this panic mode or this feeling of scarcity, like, this is our only chance or this is the moment, everything is at stake, everything's on the table, that we're we're fueling the fear and the anxiety that our folks already experience on a daily basis being, you know, people of color and black folks and working class folks. Um, And then we're kind of expecting them to just manage that in addition to the the weight of the election season and kind of put all that to the side and focus on voting, Um, which is, you know, why I feel like this prioritization around electoral politics ends up making it so that people have to kind of be in martyrdom. They sort of have to sacrifice themselves and their identity politics and the issues that matter to them to put forth the labor and the effort um, for candidates that may not reflect them or their issues. So what do you feel is the role of electoral politics in all of this? 
thinking about it like a toolbox. How does it all fit in? I definitely feel like, you know, this sentiment that I've heard a few times, like from Charlene Carruthers, like that electoral politics, electoral politics is definitely a tool in our organizing toolbox. And I, I totally agree with that to some degree. I think that, you know, there are moments that we can push and nudge and pull people in, in the direction that actually benefits our communities. There is potential in that, but I also don't put all my eggs in one basket or half my eggs even. Like electoral politics is really just the smallest <laughs> fragment in my organizer toolbox because I know that the system that exists now was not created with people like me and you in mind. I know that it continues to fail. If it had the potential to work, it would have worked by now, and it's not working. Um, we've seen people who are labeled progressive actually perpetuate some very, some very tough harms on our communities. And and so again, I, I speak to this feeling of like, at what point do we start holding people accountable? Um, the bar is low in a lot of instances. It's like, well, they did good on this, so like, queen, king, like. But then they did all this other stuff and we're supposed to just be like, well, like it's better than nothing. You know, I, I actually want a candidate that I feel excited about, that I'm passionate about, that I'm like, yes, that person is really fucking with me and my communities and they're really here showing up for us. Um, and I, we don't get to see that. Um, and it's kind of disheartening. And then to expect again, like BIPOC folks to just make a decision just to like get our votes in there, just to make something happen, it's like, but you're not actually organizing with our interests and with our communities in mind. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely struggle with this tension around like, I do see electoral politics as a tool in our toolbox, but I'm also like, the tools are broken, like the toolbox ain't functioning. Like, what are the things that we can do um, that really in includes some strategic power building in our communities that actually make some changes happen? And I'm, I don't see that happening just through electoral politics uh, or relying too heavily on electoral politics to get us there. Rain was the first person that I talked to for this episode, and I feel so grateful for the space that we shared together to kind of name the messiness of all of this and to put language really to the tensions that come up when thinking about what politics is and how that plays a part in our work and our identities and what we value and I feel like she also named what it would sound like to demand more out of our politicians, to say that we're not compromising on our values or on specific issues that we care about, and that this should always be the standard and what we ground ourselves in this work if it continues to exist as it does, that we need to radically change how we approach this work, the language that we use, not only to when demanding these things from our politicians, but how we're even talking to each other and how we're talking to communities and not putting the pressure and urgency by saying things like, this is the moment, this is the most important election of our lives, or saying that everything's at stake in this very moment, when so much is at stake all the time. And so Rain really just captured all of that. And I feel so grateful for our conversation and continue to feel this sense of gratitude throughout all my conversations with my guest today. And so let's get into our next conversation with our next guest, Jose. Jose is a queer Puerto Rican currently residing in Miami, Florida, is an equity and justice educator and talks to us today about his journey with electoral politics, how this current moment is radicalizing him and his hopes for the future. I think 
even now throughout this pandemic, it's definitely radicalized me even more uh, and seeing how things are handled and how this city of Miami who claims to be like a bluer or more progressive city, like doesn't care for the people who are here. Like, like there, there's so many homeless people in the city that this, that they don't care about them. They only care about JLo who lives in Star Island and her million dollar mansion. Girl, Jay, all of them, all of them on Star Island. And it's wild because I live in the gentrified part of near downtown Miami and literally the street next to us, they're homeless. there's a huge homeless population that folks drive by every day and don't try to provide resources to. And I think about what these politicians claim and it's the same thing every time in this bullying of vote or die. And like I said before, like people are dying whether I vote or not. What are you doing during that other time, the other four times a year when you're not vo- voting? And so I just constantly think about that and how I think that slogan started with P. Diddy back in like uh, 2004, vote or die. And it's like, that's 16 years later and you're saying the same crap and you've done nothing. All the Democratic Party has done is go more right. Like when I think about why Biden was chosen as VP was to persuade more white Republican voters back in 2008, nobody talks about that. And we're supposed to forget the crime bill. We're supposed to forget how on the, like how embarrassing is it that on national primary debate stage, you have Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris saying, you supported segregation and I'm the daughter, I'm the young girl who had to get bust. And then now you're running as his vice president. What's, what, how does that make sense? How does, and a whole, top cop. She's proud of being top cop of California. Like, I'm embarrassed for her. I'm embarrassed for him. I'm embarrassed for a country that, and we kept talking about what was electable. And it's like, you're saying Biden was the most electable, but then why are you bullying me into my one vote? If he was so electable, sis, why are you worried about me? What's the tea? Like, that should not be bothering you. What I do as an individual. You should have spent the past four years. and And I also think about this dichotomy of, like, bullying people into vote when Hillary won the majority of the vote. They love to say that Trump wasn't the real president because Hillary won all the votes. Then why didn't she spend the past four years fighting for the Electoral College to be abolished? When we look at the history of how that was to uphold slavery and to keep white poor people out of politics. Why weren't you fighting against that if you've known that every candidate like who's won, like of thinking about how like, Democrats have constantly won the popular vote and the Electoral College, but Republicans can lose the popular vote, but still won because of the Electoral College. And it's like, why weren't you fighting for that the past four years? Because you know you have the votes. You have the people supporting you. And just thinking of, like, how they haven't really done much. I look at Nancy Pelosi and, like, what is she doing, ma'am, instead of just ordering expensive ice cream? Like, what is she actually doing to like help people. Why should I be supporting her? Or Diane Feinstein, the senator of California who was hugging Lindsey Graham and saying, you led an incredible judicial search. No, Amy, whatever her name is, is a violent white supremacist. And you are saying, thank you for doing this so politically and respectably. Like, and I'm supposed to say vote blue no matter who? Like, that doesn't make sense. And something's not adding up here. Clearly the current political system in the US is not working. And so could you imagine for a bit and share your visions of what 
another governing system could look like in the U.S.? I Things I think about are, um, I'm not sure if you follow the account on social media, but they're called the NAP Ministries. Uh, they're an incredible account, and they are have been a daily reminder for me to realize, like, this isn't normal. The world we live in isn't what's normal. Uh, and thinking about, like, when humans existed in their first creation we didn't live in these stressful environments where we were governing and there was violence and policing we were just living in nature sleeping daydreaming eating like that's what our what we're supposed to be doing and so when i think about our government like in a world that would be just without the u.s government there wouldn't be a billion dollar industrialized military like there wouldn't be representatives who are paid millions to billions by corporations funding them so that people aren't hurt um and i think about like our if there is no government like or if there is some kind of governing that happens or some kind of statehood um it looks like it being led by people who are kind of anti what this all is like like you mentioned like the abolitionists i think about how um this land was stripped from the indigenous people who were here, who were cultivating the land, taking care of the land to give back to it so that it could give to us. Um, and that people can just be free and happy and joyful and not have to, like, I think about how much of our life is consumed by working and how much of it's consumed by not doing the wrong thing so we don't end up in jail. Like, and I'm not sure if that's how all people think about that. Um, I'm not sure if white people think about that on the daily of like not going to jail but I know, like, especially being so close in proximity of my dad being throughout the prison system all his life and my grandfather, like, I think about that a lot of, like, I'm not that far removed. And I've been told all my life, don't do everything they did. But all they did was try to survive an unjust system. And I think about that, like, what could this world look like that allows us to be happy and free and loving and caring and providing in our needs? Um, that isn't exploitive and harmful and violent and hyper-surveillance. The visioning that Jose just shared with us reminds me of the importance of taking time to imagine, to dream, to ground ourselves in what could be, understanding that another world is possible, that the systems that are currently in place don't have to be the end-all be-all, and I feel so happy that Jose shared with us what it could look like. And I think about what if organizations like the one I work for or others had committees or groups of people who were reimagining what another governing system could look like and what are we doing year after year to make sure that that can happen for future generations. And Alongside this piece of visioning, I feel like what Jose really also tapped into and what I talked about at the beginning of this episode is just the wildness of respectability politics and particularly how it shows up in, in electoral work and reminds me what I almost called this episode, which was people are dying, Brecklin. And this was in response to a question that I heard at the vice presidential debate with the fly, the one that went on Pence's head. So at the end of that debate, if you tuned in towards the end, after the whole fly debacle, right, you 
heard this question from this young girl named Brecklin who talked about how she's so tired or frustrated with seeing politicians fight. And if all these politicians are fighting, how do they expect us Americans to not fight and come together like they say that they want us to? And so, you know, Pence goes on to say how, you know, we come up here and we may argue, but at the end of the day, we all come together because we're Americans. Harris had a very similar kind of response, which I believe then prompted the moderator to share that RBG was like besties with Justice Scalia, who was literally so violent and awful. You can look it up. And I just remember looking at the screen and being like, one, why the hell would you say that? (laughs) That's embarrassing for her. Supposedly this woman that we're supposed to honor, you just admitted that she was besties with like this violent person, right? So clearly we understand where people's values lie. Conversation for another day. And so I feel like we have to be honest with what's happening. As these people are, quote unquote, arguing and saving face and saying all these things to each other and then coming back and being like, well, we all come together. Like while RBG and Scalia were having dinner, while Pence and Harris are fighting on this stage, like the decisions that are being made by these politicians have like dire consequences for communities, specifically black and brown people. And I wanted to tell young Brooklyn, while I I'm so happy that she is, you know, wanting to learn more about politics and is seeing kind of these fights that are happening that like people are dying. Right. We have to be honest about what's happening and be honest about what these people have the power to do. And so as I'm navigating all of these feelings and putting together the ideas for this podcast, I wanted to make sure that I talked to somebody who is doing electoral work within an organization. And so this brings me to my next guest, Vanessa. She might have texted you or called you during this election cycle. And she's here to chat with us about her role in all of this and how everything that we've mentioned so far deeply impacts the work that she does day to day. One thing that I, I always do try to talk about on my own social media, I identify that, you know, it is not my place to tell uh, black and brown people how to vote like that. I will never see that as like a position I can take. But I do make clear that the reason that I'm voting is uh, because of people who are undocumented in this country, because of DACA, because of TPS. So very specific reasons. Um I'm very vocal about not supporting either major candidate, but I, you know, I also try to remind people, uh, you don't have to vote for president, but please, you know, vote for your state representatives, vote for Congress, vote for your sheriff, especially in light of, you know, events this year, you know, not that police brutality isn't a new thing. It's been going on for centuries. Um, so I, I, I always try to, you know, it's a phrase. I try to listen just to listen, not listen to respond. Because I I have friends who are also like, oh, how can you, you know, how do you just tolerate people in your life that don't vote? I'm like, I, there's organizers um, that I know that, you know, refuse, that refuse to vote for, um, 
for a candidate and I don't and these are people that are really doing the work you know so it I think we're really losing out on voter participation by by telling people I see a phrase a lot that says um if you're not voting you don't have a right to complain and again I think that's very one like gaslighting to I think that's very invalidating to people especially you know vulnerable communities across the country so my uh, my approach this whole time like I've made it a personal goal of myself is to teach people why we can't voter shame why you know we need to focus on issues instead of saying how dare you not vote ask yourself why do these people not want to vote why have people given up on you know this country that is supposedly you know a, a holding democracy so that that's something that I've um made like a mission even in electoral work I just think the whole like um vote or die or if you can't vote you can't complain uh just overall voter shaming is very ironic to me because it's very alienating right the whole purpose of voting is like this is us speaking out uh as a community coming together as a people to say you know to say what we have to say and by you shaming someone now you're 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 just further you know encouraging that person to not vote you're solidifying like ah yes it's people like you that make me not want to vote even more now i'm even more you know like cemented into my strong position of you know not participating um not completing my civic duty being a part of the electorate so something and like it's just what bothers me too especially more than anything and like something I want to focus on like I there were certain periods of unemployment my parents went through but for the most part like I grew up very privileged um I grew up in in an area with also like very privileged people and to hear these people say, you know, like vote voter shame, like, oh, like, how dare you not be involved? But then again, these people are completely out of touch with like the vulnerable communities in our area, you know, don't know anything about like, well, what should we do about housing projects and like access to clean water and feeding the homeless and like just basic things, basic resources are, are completely out of touch with like access to healthcare because, you know, they are privileged with incredibly you know good insurance so it's that's what bothers me most of all those are the conversations I want to start is like amongst privileged people to understand hey you know this this goes beyond voting for a president that that should be you know the least of our concerns so it's you know and again that's me speaking as someone who like has to call people who manages a team to call people to ask about their input and yeah, a lot of, um, so like most of the crowd, right, it's either, you know, one one major candidate or the other, but there is like a, a good sector that's like, no, like I don't vote. I don't do this. And I never, I tell my canvassers the same, don't, don't ever push someone, you know, just let them know, like, I understand, I respect your decision because that, that's something people need to come around on their own. Um, if anything, I, you know, I want to encourage other people to listen, like ask them, Hey, you know, in a, you know, if the, if the environment calls for it, if you feel comfortable, ask them in the most respectful way possible and let them know like, Hey, I, I care about, you know, I want to learn more about your perspective. Why do you not vote? Um, 
I think if you approach someone the right way and they're in the right mindset to have that conversation, you you learn so much that that's how I know, like, okay, voter shaming is very arrogant. It's very entitled. It's very just like, it just reeks like um, out of touch with reality. You have a particular perspective because you do this kind of electoral work as your job. And so what do you feel organizations like the ones you work for should be focusing on in terms of elections in the next years? The best. So something that just came to mind that I I didn't mention earlier, uh, the best bet I could think of right now is normalizing a third party. Uh, Normalizing like uh, like I heard Nina Turner is going to run. which I think she would be, and you know, just the best bet I see is um, a, the third party taking on, you know, an anti-establishment, anti-corporatist candidate that that's funded by the people that doesn't take any PAC money. Um, that I think would really switch things. If we had, okay, so now now it's coming to me. <laughs> if if we are to keep the system right. Um, we need to enforce uh, strict laws, laws that need to be followed in that like there needs to be stricter caps on how much money can be donated and not even how much. It's like who is who is funding who, right? Like I feel like certain certain uh, companies shouldn't even be allowed to be funders, right? Especially we talk money like Amazon, like funding, funding uh, a candidate. That's outrageous. Amazon is worth billions of dollars. Like that's not the whole concept of Amazon shouldn't even exist, but that that's, you know, that's for another day. But, um, so if we are to make, you know, if we are to fill in the gaps in this system, it's, we need, we need to put, um, limits and we need to put, uh, we can't allow certain people to fund certain candidates because that, that's the, the reason we have the candidates we have today is because their funders are, incredibly wealthy people, people, people that have wealth because of exploiting, um, black and brown bodies and exploiting like, you know, 90% of Americans, probably more. I so appreciate Vanessa naming that we should prioritize normalizing a third party and third party that is people funded, not corporations funded, that represents the interest of working class people and really reflects the kind of governing structure and system that we want to see. And our next guest navigates the similar tensions around this two-party system that exists and shares that we really shouldn't be shaming independent voters, third-party voters, because they're really voting for what they believe in and what their values lie in. Our next guest is Adam, a diehard Leo, and someone who's become even more politicized during this quarantine. He shares a little bit about his journey with understanding electoral politics and what he feels is important during this election cycle. I think I'm in a very interesting situation because the first presidential election I got to vote in was the 2016 one, right? And so that was my first real, like, exposure into politics. And I think for a lot of people, not wanting to speak for others' experience, but the 2016 election was a very major election, just in terms of the international scales that it brought up, in terms of just the outcome and how many people weren't expecting it. I think it was this very, like, pivotal point of when for a lot of people, 
they could no longer ignore politics and what was happening, right? And uh, I think growing up as a black man, especially as like a black queer man, <laughs> I was always very in tune with, how do you say, with what was going on in the world. When I think about, for example, my first time really recognizing like, oh, I walk differently in this world compared to everybody else. I think too when um, Trayvon Martin was killed, right? And I think of how my mom came to me at one point and was like, you can't go out in black hoodies anymore. And I had to think about like, why? Like, what is it? Like, what's happening here? Why can't I wear this clothes anymore? And it was that point when I had to realize like, oh, there's certain pl- there's certain mechanisms in place in the society we live in that influence some people worse than others, whether that's a corrupt government, whether that's a corrupt class system, whatever it might be. And I think, I don't remember how old I was then, but I think that's the point when I started to have to like forcibly make myself tune into politics more and tune into what was happening more because I knew it would have a direct impact on my life. And as for (laughs) becoming more like radicalized, quote unquote, I think that honestly happened in like the past six months. I tell a lot of people, I think COVID has changed the selection cycle very deeply because for the first time, a lot of people are at home and a lot of people are, when they're bored, just looking stuff up, whether that's watching news clips, watching videos, whatever it might be, myself included in that. And it's been just this very pivotal change of like, I have more free time to do the research I wanted to. I'm discovering more about the parties versus just having this automatic assumption in my head of like, if you're, if you have these certain beliefs, you vote Democratic. If you have these beliefs, you vote Republican. Actually digging in and thinking about like, okay, but what are these policies? Are these policies in place ones that, while sure they help the climate, are they actually helping the climate where it needs to be helped, or they're just pushing the issue further back? It's like how you mentioned earlier, people have that kind of like mindset of like, oh, wait till after the election, and then we'll confront like the electoral college. But we've said that for the past however many elections, right? That just keeps getting said. And at the end of the day, it's not going to change. It's. I think it'll be funny. <laughs> I think it'll be funny to see if Democrats win both the presidency and the Senate. Just because it'll be inter- interesting to see what actually does change, right? Like what policies are actually put forth when they have this majority. Something that like might be a hot take <laughs> is that if any other Republican was in office, they'd be doing the same thing that Trump is doing right now. They would just not be as visible about it, right? Trump's actions are broadcasted around the world because he has his infamous tweets and because he is a media person at the end of the day, and that's what he thrives on. But at the end of the day, if any other Republican was in office and they had that majority right now for even just talking about the Supreme Court seat, they would be doing that exact same thing. They blocked Obama before Trump was in office. And so I think it's I think it's interesting with that point you said about how someone believes that the third party vote is a waste because something you have to remember is that for a lot of people, they do not have the same ideals and beliefs as the Democratic Party, right? They might not be Republican, but they are they might be way more left in the Democratic Party. And so like it doesn't make sense for their beliefs to vote for the Democratic candidate. Like I'll be 100% honest when I say that like I voted for Biden. That's what my vote was. But 
I can't tell people to make that choice because they have to do what lines up the most with their beliefs at the end of the day. Everybody has that choice to make. We live in a democracy and we have to be able to respect that. I think that my biggest thing is just to respect the fact that we're in a democracy, right? Not it is a privilege within itself. It's a privilege, one, that you can vote. And it's a privilege, two, that we live in a country that is democracy. I'm not... I will be the first to say that there might be some suspicious stuff happening behind the scenes. We don't know if the democracy is going to play out. We don't know if the voting is going to play out how a democracy should allow it to play out. (laughs) I'll be the first to say, like, I have my own tensions about that also. But we are in a democracy. You have to let people vote how they want to, right? You can be angry about it. You can be frustrated by it. But the same reason that you can cast your vote for who you want is the same reason that that person should be able to cast their vote for who they want. Unless we're talking about like Kanye West. (laughs) Adam lays it out pretty simply. People vote for what they believe in and where their values lie. So when we have a huge amount of folks believing in someone like Trump, how are people like me and the folks on this podcast supposed to navigate a world, reimagine a new world while living alongside people who are complicit in white supremacy, who are literal white supremacists? This brings up so much tensions for me as someone who does political education work, facilitates, because I think about the conversations that we're most likely going to need to have. Doesn't necessarily mean I need to talk to a Trump supporter. I don't know. But I worry about how all of this can exist in one, in one space that is the U.S. And yet I feel there's this important piece to continue to, to push and to be critical and to think about what accountability looks like, not only for politicians, but for, for each other. And so our next guest really dives into those two pieces. Amber is a black Caribbean 22-year-old woman who is currently enjoying her growth years before applying to medical school next year. And it's talking to us today about voter suppression, importance of being critical, and thinking about accountability beyond election cycles. When I first saw your post, it like I felt like it was like made for me because I was like, wow, <laughs> like someone understands what I'm going through right now. And I think like with the whole idea of like hearing vote or die or like pick between the lesser of the two evils, that was like a narrative I was seeing a lot on social media. And it really bothered me because I feel like that language is dangerous for like marginalized and disenfranchised communities. And it kind of puts the onus on them to continue to pick candidates who will never represent them or even try to center them. And it puts the blame on them for the reason why this keeps happening when the issue is the institution and like just the corruption, the corruption that happens and like voter suppression. Like I feel, I feel like when, when I saw that, I felt like people didn't understand what voter suppression is and how that literally skews all the data we see. So I hate that narrative and it was just really bothered me because it, it, it made it seem like like my community never shows up and I feel like we do and we're always fighting for like what we're trying to see but we're always getting that pushback um and I it, it kind of upheld the idea of the two-party system like I'm against the two-party system like I I think having that be so like entrenched in our society for so long is the reason why we see all these issues and we need to make a new way for like just imagining something better and new. Um, 
And yeah, like when it comes to respectability politics, that bothers me too, because I hate when like I'm on Twitter, I'm talking to people and I'm being critical. I'm just being critical of things and like calling people out and like, you know, not being afraid to be who I am and like be critical and people get pushback from that. And their first thing is like, oh, so are you not voting? Oh, so you're voting for Trump? This isn't that. And I'm like, I never said that. What I said is that I'm being critical of Biden and Harris and saying how, you know, even though like, okay, I I understand everyone's kind of like, you know, anti-Trump, they want him out. Um, At least most people I've been seeing that. It's like, even when, if, if Biden and Harris win, that 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 accountability can't disappear. And I, I'm afraid people are going to be like, oh, yeah, Trump's out. And like, we have these people and it's fine. And it's like, no, then we're just going to get back to the same way. Like, these people really don't care about us that much. They're not as, as progressive as they appear. And it's like, it was a lot of rhetoric of like, they're entitled to our, our vote. And I hate that. It's like, no, like, if anything, whoever's in office, we need to still keep them accountable. We need to still pushing for stuff. Because I was being critical of like Harris and um, Biden and like people would be like, oh yeah, but she's a black woman. And it's like, okay, I know I'm a black woman. I understand she's a black woman, but I can see, still be critical of all the work she's done in the past that still harmed my community. Because at the end of the day, she's in a position of power and she needs to be able to use that platform to help us, not hurt us. And when we think of like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and everyone wanting to like, you know, dismantle, defund and this, if they're in power and they continue to do what they've done in the past, that's going to go away. They're going to, they, they say, oh yeah, we're trying to put down private prisons and do all this, but they want that. Like they care for that. That's all like, you know, so that's where my frustrations. Cause like, it's just, I feel like it's just a lot of blame on like my communities and all this. And like, we're not allowed to be critical when I think that's what we should do. And we should fight for like what we want better. I've even had, you know, conversations with my family, my friends were like, I literally, I get so like, I'm very passionate when I speak and I'm just like, yo, no, like I'm really trying to push people to forward think more because the more we do that, like the more powerful, like we can become. And I think people are scared of like that change and like the power that we, we can actually like achieve. Um, but they're using it more of as a safety net to like, cause it's, you know, it's normal. We're used to it. We're used to the two-party system. We're used to voting. We're used to just having these people here, but we're not used to challenging. We're not used to critiquing. Um, and the more that we could do that, the better, I guess we'll see, like, you know, it's not a bad thing to do that. Like, I don't understand why people think it's bad to be critical and want things to change. Like, it's okay to, like, it's okay to exercise your right to vote. Like, you know, like, don't don't bully people into thinking you know one person's better than the other it's like people vote for who they want to vote for but it's also okay for people who decide they don't want to vote because of certain reasons like you know everyone has certain stories everyone has literally experienced harm from these politicians so you have to really meet people where they're at and you know just support each other that's what I think it's really at the end of the day like I've just seen Twitter like I've had to take a lot of social media breaks because you just see a lot of ignorance or a lot of hate spewed on there, a lot of stuff taken out of context, and it's just, it just gets a lot, and it's like, so yeah, I really try to, like, center myself with my friends who do think really critically, so, like, like I said, my book club, I'll shout them out, so it's uh, Akil, Fabrice, and Christine, we meet, you know, um, like, every week, just, like, talking about stuff and being critical of things, um, 
So when I ground myself with with those type of people around me, I feel I feel better. Like I'm not sitting in that frustration and rage all the time. It's like there's still love, there's still accountability, um, and every day we just we just learn. So yeah, I just want to thank you again for creating this space for me to speak and just talk because um, I think it's good you were able to center the voices of people feeling super frustrated and confused whether. They're choosing not to vote whether they are voting, but they're still being critical. Um, I think that's important because that was a narrative I felt I related to to a lot of people versus just, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote and everything's fine and happy because it's not. Like, at the end of the day, whoever ends up winning, we're still going to have these same issues to deal with um, that we need to fight against. My conversation with Amber made me feel so incredibly grateful for the space in particular and this platform to be able to talk about love, to talk about rage, to talk about internal conflict, and to put language to that, and also to sometimes not put language to it. A lot of times we sit with these feelings and emotions and don't have the words to process it, and that's okay. And I hope that the people who are listening to this felt validated in the same ways that Amber might have felt during this uh, interview, and for sure that I did. And Our next guest dives into these feelings and tensions with the word of the day, nuance. We love that here at With Love and Rage because nuance captures all of the truths that exist when thinking about stuff like electoral politics. Anthony is non-binary and genderqueer, along with being Latinx and queer, loves the global group Luna, being an Aquarius, working in public health, and learning more about policy. Anthony and I talked about a lot and we had a great time. So let's just get into it. I don't consider, like, I think for me, like, I don't consider myself like a super well-versed person in like political theory or like political science. Like, I feel like I'm just like a person that has concerns about the world that we're living in. And so I feel like I've just seen people, like, I've seen the hurt that's been done, like, either in my own experience or people that I care about. And so I'm like, okay, like what, what, what is happening? Like, why is it, why does this have to be the world that we navigate in? And so I feel like that has led me to the interest of like looking into like what these structures are, how these structures are built. Like even something so like, it's just for me, at least like, it's just so much thinking about like why like why does that have to be this way like why do we have an why do we have electoral politics the way that we do why is legislation so difficult to navigate why like why are thing why are these abstract concepts like right to liberty arms like so like it feels like it's not real but it has such real implications to the point where like we can even get gun legislation on the books like we can't do anything because like these arbitrary concepts and like what they mean like are affecting like real people in real lives and so I'm like something has to change like something like we can't like because at this point like real people and their outcomes like are just like it's just a game at this point like people we're playing with people's lives in like in the house in the senate like it just feels so like utterly disconnected I feel like there's so much like nuance in the reasons why people feel the ways that they do around this election 
whether it be like and I think this ties to the other point of like vote or die like I don't know if you've seen I'm gonna use an awful example but I don't know if you've seen this post on Twitter where it's like what would you do in this scenario and it's like a giant like tsunami like a giant wave headed towards the city and then someone's like I'm gonna register to vote and so like and so I feel like for me, like, that captures a lot of my frustration sometimes, which is, like, we, I feel like in times of, like, crisis and, like, need, like, we are so reliant on, like, these institutions and systems to be, like, okay, like, well, eventually, like, we can just vote someone into public office that is more representative of who we want, and, like, that'll eventually lead to change, but I feel like that does nothing to mitigate the real-time harm that's being done. And so I feel like, like, people shouldn't stop with being responsive to these issues just through a vote. Like, voting is important, and, like, there's real-time responsiveness that needs to happen. And so I feel like that's the nuanced feeling that I feel, because I understand, like, I understand, like, people feeling frustrated, especially people with the ability to vote, to feeling so frustrated and being like, well, I don't want to vote for like someone who, someone who is like imperialist or like someone who like is creepy or like sexually assaulting. Like, I don't know. There's just so much that I'm like, I don't like, no one should be forced to vote for that kind of person. And I also understand like the necessity of like the real implications of like, like another four years of 45. So I feel like it's just like, it's one of those moments where I feel like it's like there's multiple truths and like, like it, it's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to reconcile them in that case. I feel like we've gotten into these conversations of like, never, like during, never during a news cycle do we, do I see so much content around race, around gender, around LGBTQ plus rights, like around so much until it becomes an election year. And so I'm like, take that same energy and like apply it, not just when you're trying to get votes, not when you're just trying, like, but when you're making policy that affects real people, like people aren't like these identities or like these experiences, like aren't just political props for like saying like, like there's this TikTok that's like Democrat, it's like Republicans, like we love fracking, like, blah, 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 climate change, like, science isn't real, but then it's, and then someone changed it to Democrats, and it's, like, in cursive, but it's, like, we believe in science, the climate is changing, but it's, like, but we love fracking so much that RuPaul loves us, go off, sis, and I'm just, like, that's the thing, like, I think, like, these institutions, we see that they're deeply broken, like, what the fuck, like, how is it that, like, we're months into a pandemic and we cannot get the Senate to, like, pass any form of relief? And it's, like, people are fucking, like, people are being evicted. Like, people are, like, figuring out food. Like, there's just so much that I'm just, like, I don't know how anyone in this administration or, like, in, in, government, in governments that have withheld aid... I'm just like, how do you sleep at night? Just because you don't agree about where money should go, how funding should be allocated. Like, meanwhile, like we see real need. Like, how the fuck do you like navigate that and like 
pat yourself on the back and you're just like, mm-hmm, I love politics. I love the energy and humor and honestly, radical honesty that Anthony brought into this space because I feel like they just navigated so much of what I've been feeling of trying to hold space for cl- the clear consequences that another presidency of 45 would be like and also what it will mean for a lot of communities to have someone like a Biden and Harris ticket and the biggest thing that has come up throughout this whole time and that has made it even difficult to put out this episode was how I was going to capture all of this how I was going to reconcile all of my tensions when I can't even name a lot of what I still feel And as we wind down from this conversation and think about everything that has been named and talked about, I wanted to share a piece of a conversation I had with my younger sister, Elizabeth, who is a freshman in high school and wanted to be on this episode to talk about her feelings about the election as well as her experiences in a virtual school setting during a quarantine and I learned so much not only from her from this conversation but just how I navigate my own internal conflict and tension and so as we listen to Elizabeth's story and reflections you know I want us to think about how are we including young people in these conversations and how Are we talking to young folks about all of this stuff that we're having to unpack here? And I can't really do a lot to, I can't vote. Like I can't, like I don't have that option. I mean, it's just like I've seen like a lot of, like I've seen like the debates and and Trump and Biden. And there's been a lot like in my generation like, we made a thing, like, settle for Biden. And on TikTok, they're, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people, like, my age and, like, Generation Z who are, who are, like, advocating for Biden and just, like, informing about what, what we want for our future. Because, yeah, like, we, like, we're not we're not in charge like the like the baby boomers are like they they're like they're setting up our future and we just have to like we can't just like sit by and just let it happen we have to we have to like speak up about it so i think this whole this whole new learning online is definitely it's definitely a huge difference and it's like, I don't know, I'm, it's like hard, like they shouldn't, ex- they, like the teachers and them shouldn't expect us to do the exact same work as like regularly years because like we're in a whole different setting, like teachers, some teachers still like are, don't know how to use the technology that good and, you know, sometimes just it just doesn't work and it's the whole the whole thing is like 
that there's so many, there's so much pressure already to do good in school. And now we're in this setting where like there's like, like all this negativity like in the world and like with Corona and like, like with the election, like all this, all this stress is happening and the school is just like builds on top of it. And honestly, I, I have been feeling like very unmotivated, like to do, to anything. Cause I've also been, I've been, I've been in school, I've been doing research about, um, like a social issue. So I picked like the failing education system, even like before all of this, the whole system, it's just, it's like very set in stone, like the tests, the grades, like you're like defined by your grades. And I feel like, like this isn't how we should, we should be learning. Like, cause I, it just, it doesn't work for me. And I've seen like a lot of my friends or even on TikTok, um, like a lot of people are saying like, can this be better? Can there be a change? And yes, there can be a change. And that is maybe like who you who you vote for and who you want to put in office not even not even just the president but like the representatives in your in your districts or county like they like they are honestly who who decide they're they're who decide more like about about your area and you have to understand who you're voting for and who you want like for your future because this is like it could go out like it could be out of the way and even with with covid maybe maybe biden can do better or like maybe yeah, with maybe there can be a change in how this is all said, and maybe you with the education system, like even like small changes can go like a long way with with everything. I feel like what Liz was just talking about is this sense of hope that I think a lot of people are grounding themselves in when thinking about this election. While a lot of this stuff that is happening currently, police brutality, like inaccess to health care, unemployment happens all the time, it does especially feel like a heightened moment. And the the light or some sense of hope that people see within a non-Trump presidency is a valid feeling, right? And I see that. And how can I invalidate my sister who, who's 14 years old, who's, who's navigating all of this and wanting to, to see, see changes, right? And not being able to, to vote, right? Or to, to act in the ways that she would like to to make these kinds of changes. And then I think about how else am I engaging her in conversations that don't center 
electoral politics as the only way to to create change. I felt like as I heard her talking about, well, I can't vote, so other people should. I was like, oh, my gosh, am I not teaching her enough that, you know, we shouldn't be voter shaming? And then I just kind of got back to me that people like Elizabeth, people like Brecklin only see what are things like on TikTok or let's say on social media. And the fact that she's working through these conversations at her age when I didn't even begin until I was later in college just shows her willingness to want to be a part of these conversations and also her willingness to learn. And so I think about the tensions that she feels in school. You know, if you notice, she kind of talked about how she realized that does it have to be this way? And there's almost like this this questioning that she's going through as well in terms of does school have to be like this? Do I have to be graded this way? Is there another way to learn? And I feel like that's what's happening for a lot of folks in terms of this electoral cycle and just thinking about politics in general. That's what I've been feeling. Like, does it have to be this way? And I think I've realized that it doesn't. And so while I've had trouble to wrap all of these conversations in a beautiful bow, I can't do that. All of these conversations weave in together somehow because they all exist. And I think one thing that I've learned throughout this this time in creating this episode is that I have a really difficult time working through tension and conflict. And I think why that is, is because I really look at things super black and white. And I know that that doesn't serve me. And so I have to think about nuance, as Anthony mentioned. I have to think about the multiple truths that exist. Talk about what this podcast is really trying to dive into. And so I'm closing out this episode not having all the answers. I find myself still curious to want to learn more, to want to continue these conversations, and also to take a pause and to continue to process. And so I just hope that folks feel whatever they do feel and have the space and people to process their feelings with. I hope that people feel, like I said at the beginning, validated, challenged, and and curious in the same ways that I do feel in this moment. And so I want to thank everyone for, again, your patience in this episode coming out. And again, want to honor all the labor that folks continue to do when it comes to unpacking all of these topics. It doesn't just happen on this podcast. And so find ways to continue to get connected and ways to unpack these conversations because there are people out there who definitely feel the ways that you do. And so, again, thank you all for listening. Let's listen to the theme song and dance because that was a lot. Okay, goodbye. I'll see you soon. Bye. 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 Hey.